welcome, welcome to another bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and today we have the recorded audio from the December 9, 2021 guest speaker, who was defense attorney Jackie Rylander. We had a great conversation with Mrs. Rylander. She gave us a ton of really great information about making the transition from being a prosecutor to a defense attorney gave us some really practical advice about setting up a defense practice, uh, and even ran us through a sample client problem. It was fantastic. So without further ado, here is the recorded audio from our guest speaker, Mrs. Jackie Rylander. We are so, so very excited to welcome Mrs. Jackie Rylander to speak with us. She is a fellow Baylor lawyer. We love it. We love... uh, you know, our, our, our Baylor lawyer family and are really grateful that she uh, is able to come to us. And we want to give a special shout out to our friend, Michael Morin, uh, for helping set this up. We are, we're blessed to have him too. So thank you, Michael. All righty. Mrs. Rylander has prosecuted thousands of misdemeanor and felony cases in Williamson County over her 10-year tenure. That's great. I love that. As a criminal prosecutor, she has first chaired over 50 jury trials, class B misdemeanors through first three first-degree felony cases, and first chaired over 100 Class C misdemeanor jury trials. On average, she prosecuted a caseload of 400 felonies, state jail felonies, through capital murder. From 2017 to 2021, she has raised her two sons and volunteered at the University of Texas School of Law in the Trial Advocacy Program. In December of 2018, she began a criminal defense law practice. Mrs. Rylander has taught over 2,000 hours in the areas of criminal law, criminal procedure, ethics, negotiation, and trial advocacy to hundreds of undergraduate and law students throughout Texas in her her roles as mock trial judge and coach, guest lecturer, and supervising attorney of internship programs. As a lifelong resident of Austin, Texas, Mrs. Rylander has enjoyed serving her community through local nonprofit organizations Riverbend Church, and various law school programs. Please give Mrs. Jackie Rylander a very warm Zoom round of applause. Thank y'all. That's a great intro. Thanks, Chris. Should I take it away? Okay. So let's go kind of big picture first and talk about both sides of the criminal justice system. Uh, I'm going to encourage you tonight to consider doing both, as I have. And then we'll kind of zero in on some of the important, you know, startup things you need to do, the nuts and bolts of beginning a defense practice. And then we'll go into one of the chief skills, negotiation. But I do really like the art of discussion and hearing your questions and thoughts. I even have an example case we're going to go through together tonight, a hypothetical, just so that we can get interaction. So please do feel free to chime in at any point. So I was thinking about what what are the similarities between both sides of the advocacy in criminal justice? And in a way, we're both seeking justice, prosecutors and defense lawyers. We're about the truth, whether it's investigating it or it is telling it in trial or through negotiation. And it, it always requires character, integrity, a lot of diligence. I would say if you're gonna be a trial lawyer, you know. Obviously, you choose criminal law because you enjoy trial, right? You will be in trial at some point. So you have the ability to connect with people and personality. One interesting thought is 
honing problem solving skills, especially on the defense side, it's a lot different. Uh, having compassion, the lesser fortunate often, and just real devotion to the people that you are defending on that side or the victims and prosecution cases. However, the perspective on justice and truth and advocacy can be a little different. So when we talk from the, the prosecution angle about seeking justice, that's our oath, right? There are all kinds of factors that you really should be thinking in your head when you're negotiating or trying a case that help relay justice. And those are things like, what is my boss's opinion or my, my uh, office's opinion or the person who's supervising the opinion of this case, getting feedback. What is the county's overall perspective on this type of case? What, what is the media portrayal? What is probation resources available for this person? What you have to kind of think broadly on all these things that are going to influence, you know, the economics. How many cases do you have? Is this the one to zero in on or not? Is it unique or is it really not? Is how do we remain uniform and consistent to all the other cases? So I call this sort of like the totality of circumstances, but not one thing's going to dictate justice. It's not what the, the victim wants. It's not just what you want. It's not just what your boss wants. It's not just what your county wants. It's not just what probation wants. It's all these things that you are having like on the scales of justice to balance, to be thinking in your head about how do I uniformly apply all these factors to all these cases, especially as a beginning prosecutor in misdemeanor world when you have usually about a thousand cases on your docket, okay? So there's a lot of things that you're juggling. Opposite to that is defense where it's like the one person and their desires and how you can promote those but still help inform and counsel and advise well and wisely so that they hopefully take your advice. But a lot of times that your defendants won't and you're having to promote their interests even if they're not the best outcome in your opinion, right? So it's actually like very opposite. It's very individual, it's very personal. It's holistic in the sense of the person, but not the system. You're not having all these factors, you're having the one person to consider in their totality. And you really have to know their person put their story, not just what happened in the case, but the entirety of the person. And that client intake we're going to talk about at the end is critical to that. Um, other kind of skills and, and things you have to think about is um, you are actually like a full-on investigator as a criminal defense lawyer, working with them as well, but you're having to do your own independent investigation. You don't have all those resources. You also don't have those pressures of like the police agencies and, and sheriff's offices and DNA labs and all of that, right? You're doing your own, a lot of times, investigation. Um, you're learning how to communicate a lot. That This is like the number one reason for people, you know, criticizing their defense lawyers. And, and so what you want to do, filing complaints, is make sure that you document and, and completely communicate and answer questions and respond. And then, of course, confidentiality is so different in defense. Uh, you know, prosecution's open file now. Michael Morton Act will talk about so different. Defense is how do you tell the truth but not dispel everything, right? So there, there are these different perspectives on justice that you kind of need to, to grapple with and understand and inform how you negotiate and try cases as prosecutors and defense lawyers. So that's kind of a big picture. So obviously, many of you desire to be prosecutors first. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily want to go to Baker or be a trial lawyer. I thought I was going to UT, I went to Rice undergrad, 
And I thought, you know, I'm an Austinite, I'm going to UT, top 20 law school. But Baylor, in so many ways, compelled me from the teaching to their trial advocacy. And, and my, my story is that I didn't start off in design criminal defense. So some of you who are just sort of like testing the waters, like Chris said, and just beginning this process, for me, what tipped it over was as I went into like the big law firms in the summers, they pay you all this money. They kept saying, you don't want to be in a in, in an office. So like you in a forum. Baylor changed me, transformed me to want to really seek the truth, defend the truth, speak the truth in the courtroom setting. Obviously, Professor Powell, evidence. I had phenomenal teachers that taught me trial. That is what converted me to criminal law. I didn't seek to be a criminal lawyer. I sought to be a trial lawyer. Everyone said, you got to be a criminal lawyer to do that. Okay. However, I found in it a real sense of um, reward. I think that no other type of law really parallels. So though I backdoored it into criminal law because I wanted to be a trial lawyer, I found reward and joy and purpose unlike I could have ever fathomed had I done, you know, any other type of law. So I entered through prosecution knowing that I would get more trial experience that way than being a criminal defense lawyer, and I could make mistakes without it costing as much. So that's why most people do enter in that way. And, you know, like job security is all kinds of benefits, right? The, the fact that you have all these amazing other trial lawyers, mentors, people surrounding you, aiding you. I mean, our first trials, you're always second chairing, right? So you're with better trial lawyers. And of course, Baylor students already already at the practice court and try cases, but you're, you're really supported. And when you make mistakes, it's not as costly. However, I will say there are some young, like Michael, who's interested um, in starting off this way. If you can intern and do these clinics in criminal defense and potentially work for a very veteran defense lawyer, they often make fantastic early trial attorneys and gain meaningful experience and really end up going out on their own pretty quickly and being successful. So there are caveats to the general rule of starting prosecution, okay? So especially if you're really bent that way and minded that way, I'm not. I'm minded as a prosecutor. So this mental leap of going to the defense is hard for me, okay? Um, so that's something to think about is there are exceptions to the general rule and you really need good mentors. Uh, you know, you can't do it by yourself. The ones that hung a shingle without having practice under experienced attorneys failed miserably. They, they did not know how to, to negotiate in a cogent manner. They did not know how to represent the totality of who their client is, um, often very arrogant, um, sort of humble and collaborative in the negotiation process. Uh, it doesn't bode well. So you really do need to gain meaningful experience prior to doing criminal defense work. Um, as I polled some of my veteran criminal defense attorney friends who started off in prosecution, since I'm newer to criminal defense in the last several years, they all said everybody should be both. That was kind of the parallel. I, you know, I like to interview people and ask, you know, what would you say to these law students about converting from prosecution to defense? And they said, you, you really need both. Everybody who wants to even prosecute as a life or prosecutor should still do defense work for a short period of time. Um, it gives you that balance, that greater perspective, especially if you want to run for judge, I think, you know, just having more unbiasedness, fairness. Okay, so why I crossed over, it was definitely more practicality than like earnest heart desire or like I'm going to defend the innocent. Okay, it was like 
I can control my schedule. You know, when you have young kids, I think Chris can relate, like your life is turned upside down, right? And they are obviously are my priority too. It took me a long time to get pregnant. And so, you know, I was kind of going through this identity crisis of I've got 10 murder cases, 400 other felonies. It's taken me two years to get pregnant. My boss lost the election. Maybe it's time not to be a prosecutor. I mean, and that was hard for me after 10 years, okay? But it was that practicality of, this, I don't think this is going to work for me anymore, you know, with the stresses of a, a newborn. And so after a hard decision, I chose to leave. Uh, I didn't even take maternity leave and um, raised my child for a short term before I did say, oh, I missed the law. And I really think my foray back in is criminal defense because of the flexibility. I also thought it's probably time for a new middle challenge. And I had taught criminal defense clinic at UT Law School with other professors and had some interaction with it, but there's nothing like jumping in and representing your first client. And of course, you usually start with court appointments because you're not marketing so much at the beginning or gaining clients on your own, right? Um, and so, you know, these people with 40 pages of criminal history who don't want to plead and that's not how it went for you on the prosecution side where you had all the power. Now you're, you know, in the groveling position. It was just, a, it's been a real mental challenge in a good way for me to, to learn. That's it. I also changed counties. So I'm in Travis now, convenient to where we live, a new courthouse, new staff. So new policies, like, so all of that's really a good opportunity. If you're going to make the switch, maybe you can burgeon and do multiple counties, um, learn, you know, new systems and ways of doing things and resources. I do love being my own boss. That is probably the best part about it, right? And you work when you need to work, especially in the virtual world now. And then um, you represent oftentimes, if not innocent, people very deserving of mitigation, right? Um, a lot of underprivileged, a lot of mentally ill, uh, like 40%, um, you know, substance abusers, just all kinds of people that really need life transformation and help. And so on that side, it's very rewarding in that sense of seeking justice. Um, you have a heart for people who are, you know, truly in need. I see it as a ministry too. I told you I was in seminary. So I really, you know, my faith informs a lot of this and working with people that are really desperate and you have the ability to speak life and truth into them and, and transformation. Because remember it's holistic. It's the person. It's, it's not just the case that you're fixing. It's the person that you're helping, you know, seek life change. You do that on the prosecution side too, but you really get to one-on-one in defense. Okay. Any questions so far or thoughts about that or disagreements? Um, I guess, so I know that as a prosecutor, there are oftentimes people, people are always angry at you for some reason or another, um, and no matter what you do, but as a defense attorney, um, do you find often that clients can be like that or are they often um I guess what's the difference in in it's like crazy. The, it's, it's so yeah. funny because like you know I got the one guy who has like slammed up he's committing a violation of protective order on video okay like he's so guilty and like I said I had 40 pages of criminal history and he's just so ungrateful and unwilling and like I had to work so hard for this like 250 you know and then I get the girl who's like got multiple felonies and she's just like whatever you think, I'm just so grateful for you. So you, you definitely get the range of personalities in the criminal defense uh, appointments. 
probably people are more rational and reasonable and, and overall grateful if they're paying for you and retaining you and picked you, you know, after interviewing you. Um, but yeah, you, I, I would say it's the same <laughs> in terms of like prosecution. You please a lot of people and there are many who are grateful. And then you also like victims and, and even defendants will write you letters and say, you know, your plea bargain changed my life. And then there are the ones who, I mean, are just, and the defense lawyers were so angry with you for not being, you know, reasonable in their minds or their clients just can't understand why you won't, you know, cave in. Uh, and victims oftentimes because you're not represent. I mean, you're representing the state of Texas, right? Victims though do inform those justice factors and, and you want to, to lean into their needs and help them and have them be good witnesses for you where they're, you know, cooperative potentially, but they get angry too, especially once again, if you don't respond. That seemed to be the biggest thing on either side is like when you are not quick to address questions, even if it's not having one them answer. There's just something about the communication that's just really critical. So that was a good question, Molly. Thank and you. I think there was another. Uh, Jackie, I was just bemoaning that you're now that you're parroting that we should all go into prosecution first, that I should probably do it. It's a big cost to the defendant if, you know, you mess up their face. <laughs> it's not a big cost to the state. And it also could hurt you with your license, potentially. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to invoke fear, but you really, people don't understand how complicated criminal substantive law and procedure is. And needing to have a good grasp of those in application and negotiation and trial, where you really hone those skills in prosecution, it's just really vital. Or you have a veteran defense lawyer who's shepherding you. So yes. Okay, any other questions before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts? So um, we're going to talk about like practicalities of setting up a de criminal defense practice. Um, and this is where you always like take people to lunch who did it before you and ask them how they did it and how they've been successful and where they messed up. And, you know, you really want to have good networking prior to starting. So it's good that you're listening tonight too, right? To someone who's done it recently, but you know, what, what is your business plan? Are you going to, market and bill yourself as like the DWI lawyer, the, the family violence one, like license revocation hearings, like real niche practices. Maybe there's a combo immigration defense, you know, you want to set up. How are you, you know, if at all going to have a niche or are you just going to do criminal defense, especially depending on, you know, what kind of county you're in. Do you want, need employees? I have none. I like being kind of self-sufficient, you know, smaller practice. Um, the policies that would govern if you did have employees and how you run your business. Social media is big, you know, asking your clients for favorable reviews, um, generating a, a website with good content, not too much or too little. Um, and I keep reinforcing this idea of like learning how you're going to communicate with your, your clients, you know, in, in the multiple ways. Like I have like a Google voice phone number that hides my normal phone number. Uh, how are you going to communicate, you know, on the web and, and, just how you set up all that. Payment structure is also another thing. Like, are you going to be paid for the case for separately for negotiation versus trial? Um, 
you know, there's all kinds of ways to set up your contracts. You need to look at other lawyers' contracts. I can share mine at some point if you want to look at that. Um, how are you going to incorporate? I did PLLC after much research, um, considering, as you know, from all your federal tax laws and everything, uh, liability and taxation issues. I like law pay for receiving payment for security. And, you know, learning all about how you set up your IELTS at your bank, Dropbox for the masses of discovery you're going to receive and need to retain. And then, of course, how you do all of your legal research. Um, now, the next question is, are you going to take court appointments? How do you do that? In what county? Um, and then are you just going to be retained clients? You're going to do a mixture of both. Most people are a mixture of both for several reasons. Um, as you can imagine, retained benefits are it's more lucrative, usually about, about five times the amount, okay? And it is, um, you know, picking and choosing and, and probably overall more responsible people, not necessarily, but probably more grateful, for sure. Uh, criminal appointments, though, I mean, it is a service to the community. The payment structures are getting better where it's more hourly than it used to be, where it was more case by case. Um, you get excellent training and resources like an investigator and immigration attorney who consults and mental health resources. Um, so there are resources at your disposal if you end up joining um, you know, the appointment systems in the county. It's called CAPDS in Travis County. There, we're on a wheel where we get appointed uh, when our names come up for the next person that's requesting a lawyer that is indigent. And then also know that a lot of times your experience could be greater with the court appointments because these people usually have long rap sheets. They, uh, you know, know the system. They think they're lawyers sometimes, um, you know, and so you have complexity that you might not have in retained clients in a good way. Uh, it's definitely the, the best way to have consistency of cases as well. And like I said, it's a true service to the community. Um, and because most retained lawyers are court-appointed lawyers too, a, a lot are. Because of that, you are dispelling the myth that court-appointed lawyers are not effective negotiators and trial lawyers because they usually do both. You know, they balance each other out and it's a service. Um, once again, we need to think about like, you have to have people who've practiced longer than you informing you. And, and so like, if you join a criminal appointment list, a lot of times, and you can also join like organizations associated with that or even retain like lawyers do, like um, local bar associations and statewide where you have access to not only their CLEs, but like the ability to, to network. Um, there are unique CLE requirements a lot of times to be court-appointed lawyers. Like I never knew I had to have like five hours of mental health um, and not, that's not always just legal, like that's just like mental health resource information and then immigration as well. So you become surprisingly a mini expert in a lot of these areas, like substance abuse, immigration. Um, you really don't become a good cross-examiner probably until maybe felony prosecutor to criminal defense lawyer, because that's your primary mode of advocacy. And then, you know, you even learn a lot of things about civil ramifications. You don't have to necessarily as a prosecutor. Uh, you know, CPS and protective hearings and, and how it affects licensing when it comes to not only driver's license, but like, you know, if your client's a dentist or a lawyer themselves, and then all the expunction laws that keep changing non-disclosure laws. So you, you learn new expertise as a criminal defense lawyer early on, and you can, you know, get the benefit of the CLEs that are associated with these organizations. 
And then uh, you, you know, you begin to really hone your skills as a negotiator on the defense side. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about now because this is more interactive and fun and like reality. So I always think this is like probably conservative. So probably 5% of my cases as a prosecutor went to trial. And I think it's less than that for defense lawyers. Okay, so this is a conservative estimate, but as Justice Kennedy says, you know, the whole system is really that of plea bargaining now, especially in COVID with the delay of jury trials and, you know, prioritization. And there's just this real movement and emphasis to resolve cases via plea negotiating. And really as a criminal defense lawyer, you should see that as a victory, right? If it's not dismissed up front uh, as the ultimate or not even prosecuted with lack of probable cause, or you know, unindicted, then how can you win at plea negotiation? So you don't even get to trial. That's your victory. And it is how the majority of cases are resolved. Okay, so some things you, you really have to know, keep this slide, is the plea that is entered is the volition of the defendant, right? So obviously they have the benefit of consulting you, but they enter a plea of guilty, not guilty, or no contest. Completely freely and voluntarily, and they're signing their life away to that fact. Okay. So you really have to always say, you know, when they ask you, what would you do? And you can advise, but if you're hired on the case, by the way, not just like early on, right? You don't want to give free legal advice. So once you are their lawyer, then you need to really allow them to make that decision freely and voluntarily. Secondly, the right to waive jury trial or to proceed with jury trial, conversely, is solely in the hands of the defendant and whether they testify, okay? And so you likely will not agree, if, you know, it's at times with their decisions on one of these three, and yet they make that choice. And that's hard, I think, as a defense lawyer, when you have that lack of control. You have a certain burden when it comes under the new Michael Morton Act, I mean, it's now almost eight years old, but the idea is while the, it's all open file now, the prosecution has to give over virtually everything other than work product. I mean, it's it's much different than it was. You have to redact often supports and witness statements and make sure that certain information is not given over the, to the defendant. So that's a really good provision statute to read, 39.14. Okay, so in this idea of seeking justice and discovery, it used to be, as you know, Brady, known exculpatory material, but favorable evidence. Now it's information. And as a defense lawyer, you have to like keep the prosecution to this burden. And it's not necessarily exculpatory. Okay, it's anything material or, and when we're talking about material like guilt, innocence, or mitigating, like for punishment, even if it's entirely inadmissible, okay? So, um, you know, it becomes arguable, obviously like lawyer work product, not, but your notes from victim conversations, probably unless it's containing other privileged information like HIPAA, et cetera, okay? And oftentimes that's gonna be reviewed in camera and it still may be, you know, ordered to, to be discoverable. So the statement's put on record as you know, probably you've seen discovery logs, what they've given you, and you have got to go that with your client, that they have at least been given access to, you know, the video, the 911 call, the, um, 
victim interview notes, the witness statement. I mean, everything is itemized, checked off um, because of this. And this is a very important burden that you have to hold the state to as a defense lawyer when you're negotiating. Okay, so let's do an example. Um, it's getting a little old, but you might have seen where the football player, Ray Rice, in an elevator beat up his girlfriend. And so, you know, I mean, you don't see the totality of it, what happened before. And so it's probably more not a guilt innocence case. Like he, you know, there was an assault that he's culpable for. But it, it's probably a good mitigation case, you know? And so we're gonna talk about strategizing. So he actually gets arrested and charged this on with a misdemeanor and it gets bumped up to a felony aggravated assault charge, I think because of serious bodily injury. So we have the video, uh, you know, we have some evidence of his character. Uh, I don't think he has any criminal history. And then he has, you know, this, very media attentive, high profile job where he's going to get punished through uh, the NFL as well, right? But so he's caught up in the criminal justice system and on this felony charge with video evidence. How would you guys begin the negotiation process, let's say as the defense lawyer? Like what, how would you strategize? What would you start to convey? And early on negotiations about your client. Well, I'm curious as to um, his background, if he's had much trouble with the law, because I think that that would be some, one of the first things I would discuss with the prosecutor. So let's say no arrest history. That's good. I like that you're filling in facts. That's good. Yeah, I would definitely uh, start with that and maybe discuss how he's kind of like a public figure, not in like a treat him better type way, but um, it shows that I think because the public eye is on him, um, we don't want to necessarily make an example out of him, especially because he doesn't have any sort of bad um, history. He obviously messed up here, but it's not worth completely dragging his name through the mud and maybe destroying his entire career. Okay, so kind of thinking about the ramifications on his work, that's good, like, like the effect of a conviction. How else could you use it in your favor that he's, a, you know, in the public eye? Like, if you didn't want him to have so many criminal justice ramifications, but maybe like professional ones, what could you offer? I would, I mean, I would kind of stress that with, since it's a domestic violence case, I'd really want to be like, he doesn't, like, yeah, we, he really wants to get better. We really want yeah. to make sure it doesn't happen again. And he is a public figure and we don't want to have to, you know, well, I would definitely put it in, in more of a, like, he wants to get help and be better than, than just, please don't punish him. He's a football player. And what could he do on his own to affect that? He, I mean, he would need to be, you know, in, in therapy and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. maybe some kind of domestic violence course mm-hmm. education yeah psychiatry you know anything like mental health right uh in that in that vein I think and if he's willing to do it on his own volition that's very compelling to the prosecutor they're not having to come and ask him to do it right so if you could offer those kind of things and, and in this in this situation is he are you assuming like he is like willing to negotiate or he's someone yes that, like, 
Okay. Good question. Yes. He is not saying I'm pleading not guilty and taking this to trial. He's saying, you know, I've hired you. What do you think is the best result that I can get? I would like to continue to play football. You know, you know his desires and things, right? So um, I would like to continue to stay with the victim. Um, you know, I'm willing to use my position of power for good. So I, I would really like to avoid a conviction. So what other things do you think could be helpful for negotiating a case like this? I would probably touch on the fact that the NFL is probably going to smack him a bit too. Yeah. Especially probably like in light of recent, you know, years of all the catastrophes and things, right? It's gotten a lot more awareness. And so, I mean, this was 2013. So we can really, I think for 14. So this could really escalate in 2021. That's good. Okay, let me show you what happened. He actually got pretrial intervention. It's like shocking because there is a victim and there's serious injury. So what that means is he basically does like a, it's not even a deferred adjudication. I mean, it's like a 12 month program where if he doesn't get arrested during that 12 months, probably takes a class, you know, during that time, he gets the case dismissed, like expunction of a felony. And as the uh, student just said, he also was suspended by the NFL, but I mean, really just two games. I mean, it's not probably losing out on much income there, right? So, you know, obviously the criminal defense lawyer did a bang up job, I would say, <laughs> maybe more mercy than justice in the sense um, here. I do think like one thing that can really help when you do have people who are unique individuals, often in the media, is if they can use this is a platform for good. You know, the, the fact that he did complete the program, that he did stay out of trouble, that he did utilize the criminal justice resources, um, you know, that's all really compelling. So this is what we call when we're negotiating, when we're strategizing, this is much more of a punishment case, which is the, I'll give you this example because this is the majority of the cases you're gonna get. Guilt is not always clear cut and there's usually some legal questions in every case, legal issues, whether it's procedural or substantive, and you can strategize that, and you can bring those out in negotiation, usually more over time than right at the beginning. But the majority of cases probably are resolvable in favor of guilt of the defendant, okay? And therefore, um, it's more about mitigation and punishment. And this is where your investigation really comes in to make the holistic person appealing to the prosecution, why they should be lent mercy um, and justice and given opportunities beyond, you know, just the average case. You need to substantiate it. So you, whenever you're negotiating, you should always have, you know, paper corroboration or, or any other media to explain why what you're saying is true about the fact that they took classes, took counseling, did community service, pay their fines and fees. They're gonna lose their job at HEB if they take a conviction. Like you have to produce the evidence of that, okay? Mitigation evidence, as well as if it is a guilt innocence issue, pointing to the law, pointing to the case law, but not doing it in an adversarial manner like you would in trial, but in a collaborative one, okay? So your negotiation technique is first, is this more of a guilt innocence case? 
more of a punishment case? And then how are you going to substantiate the issues on both of those? Okay. And then we'll go to style. So this is the trial slide that always the juries really appreciate it because it helps them hone in on what's important in guilt innocence phase of trial versus punishment. And it helps you hone in on what's important for strategizing your case. So when you're looking at, is this a, a possible guilt issue or, you know, some kind of legal caveat and admissibility issue. So you're looking at all the exhibits like on that discovery log, you're looking at who your witnesses are and their credibility. And like recently in light of everything, you know, knowing the police officer's character and getting their files, it's really critical as well. And then, you know, reasonable inferences, as you know, uh, based on the evidence. So what can you draw from the guilt innocence evidence? You know, the, the police reports, the media of the case itself. And then outside that are all the things that affect mitigation or punishment, right? What does the client deserve if guilty of that offense or a lesser included offense? And so what we, and, and there's no like legal caveats. So on the outside, you know, is your client going to be sympathetic? Maybe Ray Rice is, maybe he's not, right? Uh, like Molly was saying that the past criminal history, but not just that, but their entirety, you know, their, their professional history, their family, who they are. The effect of the conviction is really big, especially in a pandemic and job losses and everything. So if you can show employment and how it's affected, that can really alter a prosecutor's perspective because they want to keep people productive members of society and not wasting $67.50 a day putting people in jail, their county resources, okay? Um, just in general, what is the punishment kind of fits the crime? Um, you know, how is the law written to that effect? Because there's always these ranges. And then, you know, what are different ways that in your county that could be helpful and effective? Um, not just for the person, but for um, society. Your personal opinion, um, the defendants, you know, the counties, all these, like, what are people saying about this case, especially the type of trial? Um, speculation, that is something that is definitely, like, reserved for outside of the guilt innocence, right? Um, defendants' attempts at mitigation, especially on their own, and public opinion. So those are, those really feed into the punishment aspect, but not the guilt innocence. So you really kind of have to think separately and strategize your case. Um, you win more bees with honey than vinegar, right? So overall, you need to be humble, collaborative, kind, groveling a bit as the defense lawyer, which is hard. I think been a prosecutor and you know empowered. And the adversarial nature comes toward the end of negotiation, you know, toward jury trial. But you really don't start off this way. Uh, it, at the law school at UT and the criminal defense clinic, we talk about the corsage theory, but like when you go to the prom, you don't ask for the kiss of your date up front. You bring them a corsage and you date them and you wine and dine them. And then you go to the dance and at the end of the night, you ask for the kiss. You don't ask for the dismissal or you don't ask for like all this leniency early on. Um, and you certainly don't fight for it early on. Uh, you really... <laughs> charm and use your personality and know your defendant well and convey it in a very, you know, kind and collaborative manner. And you win the dismissal at the end. 
Okay. And who cares? Like <laughs> you get the dismissal, you want it. Like if it takes time and it takes like all this effort, it's worthwhile. So the style is really critical. Okay. So I interviewed, uh, you know, like 10 prosecutors in Williamson County about what they would want criminal defense lawyers to do when negotiating, like the top things that they criminal defense lawyers should do and the top 10 things they should not do. Okay. So you get kind of a, an overview. So we as prosecutors would expect defense lawyers to know the case far better than we do. I mean, the average defense lawyer has what between 50 and 100 cases, the average prosecutor is between 100 to 1000. Okay, so you really don't have an excuse not to know the fullness of your client. Um, everything in writing. So, you know, no handshakes, no, like I talked about this on the phone, you got to get it in writing. Um, emails are fantastic for that reserved PDF, right? Um, choose your battles. So this would be with a prosecutor. Like if it's not that winning of a legal point, don't make it. Okay. If, if you're really probably likely not to win in that judge's court, but you know, if it's a, it's a winning mitigation argument, um, that your client will emphatically lose their scholarship in college. If they take a marijuana conviction, then you need to advocate that zealously. Keep an honest dialogue. We all remember the two to three criminal defense lawyers that lie to us as prosecutors. We know them by name and we don't like them. Okay. So reputation's everything. And, and that gets around because the courthouses are small. So you have to be uniform and consistent and honest with your prosecution and the tribunal. If you lie to the tribunal, then you have serious consequences. Okay. Focusing on the, you know, the main issues, like I said, is it more mitigation or guilt innocence and what within those categories do you want to direct the prosecution's attention to? Sometimes just tell them, watch this minute video. Like this is like, you know, 30.01 to 31.01 where the defendant, you know, passes the one leg stand on the DWI, holds his leg for 30 seconds without putting it down, perfect balance. Like you can see that he is not intoxicated. So like zero the prosecution in on the issue. Um, kind of see what are those justice factors that are, you know, really important to the prosecution and the people that are informing their decisions. Um, like I said, corroborate your defense. So that means everything substantiated. You cannot just talk. Do your homework on the law and present it. Um, this goes back to collaborative nature, you know, being friendly, polite, professional. So you should always be friends with both sides of the bar and, I probably made that mistake early on as a prosecutor of not going to lunch with more defense attorneys and, you know, kind of working through lunch and you probably will be up on the other side and you can learn so much from each other, right? It's a wealth of resources in the defense bar if you're a prosecutor, et cetera, or vice versa. And then like realistic expectations, you need to have them of the prosecutor. Your client needs to have them of you. You're always managing expectations. So, you know, know what those are at the outset and how to, how to manage those. Conversely, what you don't do, especially early on, is accuse the prosecutor of wrongdoing. That goes back to like, you know, the integrity thing. And then it becomes personal when it's not. This is objective, right? 
um, your, your representatives, it's such a beautiful thing to be an advocate, to take on another person's case, or to be the voice for the voiceless, you know, the representative of the, of the people who are so in need of your knowledge and help. And this is why I did it, to use my brain to help people and to convince, right? And so you feel this great sense of purpose and representation, and you need to, to, to really like take on your client. I mean, women, this is why, you know, we do pull our hair back for trial. It's not about how we look or, or men, you know, not drawing so much attention to ourselves, but really highlighting who our client is and really, you know, our whole self being able to convey that persuasively to the prosecutor and ultimately to a jury. So this is that corsage theory we talked about. Um, you also don't oversell your case, talking about managing expectations, just like Chris did his opening statement today, in, in actuality, not on Zoom. And I know it's rewarding, but you, you know, it's you have this tendency to want to say everything and sell your case like a closing argument. And you can't do that in negotiation early on, and you can't do that in opening state, right? Because of that honesty thing, integrity. Okay, nothing. So there are lawyers who, you know, like you've heard of the ones that sleep through trial and ineffective sense of counsel, right? So a lot of times they just kind of walk up and negotiate and they're saying like, what's your offer? Not my client is this, this is their case. Let me tell you a little bit about them. What I would like to see potentially happen in the case, like they just do nothing. That is very difficult as a prosecutor because we don't know the case as well. And we really don't care if you're not helping us care, right? Um, don't think, take things personally. You know, there was a good question about like angriness and all of that and like emotions and you gotta try to remain like even healed. You'll be the better lawyer for it. Getting angry, you know, representing your client, like you don't wanna let that show the prosecution. Those few times that like the clients are trying to fire their attorney in court, that can be really not a good experience for anybody watching that. And it can be very impressionable. So trying to keep those fights out of the courtroom. Um, obviously not lying. Somehow you always want to distinguish your client. I would say for the most part, maybe there's that rare occasion where you don't want to draw attention to your client. I did have one of those. He had much more criminal history than was on his rap sheet. And I was not asked about it. And we, you know, quickly resolved that case um, in, a, in a judicious manner, but it was like, Maybe we don't want to probe too much into who he is if knowing that could be worse, okay? So there are exceptions. Uh, and then be passive. You, so, you, you know, you're still advocating, but in a collaborative manner and respectful. Okay. So these are the questions I typically get from criminal defense-oriented students. So how much of my case do I reveal to the prosecutor? Should I make the first offer? What if my client lied to me about something, uh, you know, major? And then what do I ask it like that initial client meeting? I'm gonna, uh, I'll open it up. Do you all wanna know the answers to these or any other questions at this time? I know we're getting like, it's already 820, so. Yeah, I think we'd love to uh, hear your thoughts on these. And then if anyone else has additional questions, we can ask them afterward. Okay, so I would say the first one is, you know, like I said, over time. So good introductory remarks, positive light on the first initial negotiation meeting with the prosecution, but not too many details and just kind of feeling out where they're at. So in general, 
it is specific to the prosecutor and you can ask other lawyers and you don't know this prosecutor, like what is their style? Are they usually the one to make the first offer? Do they wait over time? But you kind of want to like dip your toe in and, and paint your client in the best favorable light and then see where they're at in general. So that's kind of go together, those first one and two questions. Um, I would say you don't start off with, you know, hi, my name is Jackie. I represent Daniel Smith. He has been accused of possession of marijuana. What are you offering? Like, that's not how you do it, okay? So I would say I represent Daniel Smith. You know, this is his case number. This is uh, a little bit about who he is. He works for, he has a family. He uh, has never been, you know, arrested. Kind of all the favorable things. And I haven't had much chance to look at the discovery yet. You know, I just had my initial client meeting. Um, Maybe before we talk about an offer, I could see, you know, are there some things that you would want from me? So really massaging it early on is what I would say and and feeling out the prosecution. You're going to have probably six to 12 months and, you know, monthly standing meetings with the prosecution to talk through the case and work through a plea bargain. So don't do everything up front in general. Um, And really you're coming to investigate and know your case and your client better too. So that could be a mistake. Um, when your client likes, okay, so, you know, there's always questions you even ask them, their version of the case, would they be positive for a drug test or not? What is their criminal history? I mean, you know, these are strategic things. I would say in general, you want to know more than less so that you can strategize early on and prepare. But like, let's say your client tells you they're going to be dirty on a drug test and the court asks you that you have to answer truthfully. Okay. Now, if you really don't know, then that's your answer as well, right? So if you're perceiving that they might not be coherent and there's a way for you to not have them go before the court and and get like a, you know, continuance with, that could be helpful. So you're not being put on the spot and your client's also not having to answer questions under the influence. Okay. So that's, very much, you got to dance cautiously with exactly what you're asking your client and what exactly the court's asking you and always answer truthfully, but yet not violate your confidentiality rules, okay? So you need to know those and you need to know how to ask questions case by case. Lastly, okay, this is really important. Uh, When you do court appointments, they're going to teach you this as well. The intake form um, it's pretty thorough. Okay, so let me see. I want to try to show you if I can pull it up. It's everything. I mean, like it takes two to three hours. Okay, when you're first, if they've retained you or you've been appointed, and this is like your first meeting with them, it is comprehensive. Let me just read it. So here are the big things: current charges. Background information, especially if they're not U.S. citizens, all, you know, you can get on their identifying information, all their mothers, fathers, siblings, children, education, employment, high school, colleges, trades, skills, extracurriculars. You're getting all this out of the beginning. Currently employed, prior employment, reasons for leaving, military service, why discharged of it all, veteran status mental health, substance abuse, alcohol history, drug history, 
any treatment, locations, years, IQs, diagnoses, medications, hospitalizations, current medications, collateral consequences. So anything from like driver's license revocation, CPS involvement, public housing, food stamps, Section 8, you know, family court attorneys, um, losses of employment, immigration intake, and, and lawyers as well, and, and possible children from that, criminal history, prior charges, cause numbers, charges, classes, often states, dispositions, jurisdictions, incident itself, their version of the story, the facts, any potential guilt, innocence, witnesses, as well as character witnesses, names and contact information for you to do your independent investigation. And then there's these people that maybe do the defense, the defendant, you need to ask like, who's the primary person you want me to communicate with if at all? And remember, you know, as a third party, those confidentiality rules don't always apply to those people depending on who they are. So, you know, do they want you relaying information to a person who's not necessarily a witness as well, especially if they're still in jail and not bonded out? Um, any possible complaining witnesses? It's, oh man, the social media account. I won a case because of, as a, as a prosecutor, because the defendant admitted certain guilt on Facebook and I was able to preserve it and get it admitted. And it even went to the third court of appeals and it was upheld. Okay, so like social media is huge and what is posted and what shouldn't be and advising on that. Um, any known surveillance and like things like, don't forget about, arrest history and like photos at the jail and, and, you know, injuries on your client and doctor's reports from the jail and psychiatrists and medical records. I mean, the jail's a wealth of records for you and information. And then you'll want to follow up with your client, like right after the meeting with sending them the discovery letter, the timelines, the investigation uh, requests you need to put in and immigration and doing court appointments, um, you know, all these like HIPAA releases they have to sign so you can get the medical records and any caseworkers that they're going to have on their case for mental health or substance abuse. So it's pretty thorough. Expect like a lengthy interview with your client. And, and that begins that whole holistic defense process. Okay. So that's kind of the, the summary of the topic. <laughs> but I would love to hear any questions or thoughts or, you know, experiences that you've had with criminal defense. Uh, I just had a quick question. Uh, um, if you were to go back to prosecuting, what are some lessons that you've learned since you've been on the defense side that you would take with you? But they really do have a compelling story. It's hard to convey that to a prosecutor because we have so many cases and you know you get a little bit hard-hearted. But when you get to, I mean, you go into the jails and you see the impoverished conditions and you hear, you know, the totality of like the motives for why people do what they do or even their thought processes that are so skewed because they haven't been informed rightly of the law or their past histories. You develop a certain soft or tenderheartedness and compassion that I would want to take back into prosecution so I could hear the fullness of the stories more. Good defense lawyers could do that for me, but average ones, as a, especially as a misdemeanor prosecutor I am, you know, average ones to, to young ones or, you know, not veteran ones really couldn't paint compassionate, full stories of defendants for me. So I would want that to inform. And I might consider prosecution, I mean, I love it. I love being in that powerful position. <laughs> Great question. Um, anybody else have a question? I know we're a little bit over, but uh, 
if anybody's got you a can also email me and you probably will if you want you know some of these forms and yeah <laughs> i got from some really great criminal defense lawyers in austin so you know in as well as like motions and discovery motions and things so you have my email from the powerpoint uh jackie i was gonna ask when you first hung your shingle which area you found the most success in finding clients? Was it more word of mouth amongst clients or referrals from attorneys you knew or services or, you know, what your impression of what worked best or helped you out to find clients starting out? I mean, obviously like the court appointments kind of got me into the system and understanding it, but for retaining clients, definitely like the word of mouth and the, the reviews and, you know, it, it does help. Like I'm very Austin. I'm born and raised and I know people here and you know, someone at your church gets arrested or all your volunteer work. So being active in your community, having, you know, these concentric circles of involvement, word of mouth is really effective. I don't do a lot of marketing, but people, lawyers who do, you know, can be very effective, but be ready. I mean, you're going to probably need staff for that. And, you know, you don't want to oversell. You, you need to take the cases that, you know, that you can I've got one for you, Jackie. Um, we asked a similar question when we interviewed uh, another prosecutor for the podcast, but I, I have uh, the benefit of having access to your resume and I'm just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling this list of achievements, uh, particularly, you know, this list of achievements when you were in law school. And so the question becomes, you know, how do you take the academic understanding of the law that's so valued and so so rightly valued while we're here in law school and turn that into a usable practical everyday you know working knowledge of the law you guys really have to intern but you really have to like you know there's nothing like because they will throw you in i did it michael knows like you will sit you know get your bar card and you you've got to take this academic you know experience and see how it translates to a real case. It's, it's, I really don't understand why law school doesn't absolutely require internships. And you know, my husband's a doctor, you do residency before you practice medicine. You don't do this in law school and you're not well equipped to handle individual cases, but you can change the practicality of that by interning in your summers in the prosecution's office. You can do a combat like a six month, six week, you know, and they will take free labor and then Criminal defense lawyers will as well. You know, you just have to like reach out and ask. And then if there are clinics, I think Baylor does have one, you know, to really represent people. It's, there's no substitute for the on the job training prior to when it's all on you and your license. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Anyone else have any questions before we let Mrs. Rylander go? I'll do one more, one more bonus question. So we've, uh, over the summer, we interviewed a bunch of prosecutors and defense attorneys that came up to the law school for our criminal law boot camp, and asked them how they deal with the mental health side of the criminal law side of this profession. Because obviously, and you've talked about this a lot tonight already, you know, you're dealing with people on their worst days, and it just, the caseload is, is nonstop. So um, what, what are some of your strategies for maintaining your mental health, uh, despite the crashing, crushing pressure that you may face from time to time or all the time? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Like if it wasn't trial, I did try to leave the work at 530, not take it home, you know, in actuality with case files and not try to bring it in my head and heart home, like emotionally. So I really did try to create a separation, right? And a life outside, which I didn't necessarily feel in law school. I mean, I was, I was in a black hole for three years at Baylor. I mean, went nowhere. It's great because you're in Waco, so you can't do anything anyway, right? But like, it's so different when you have the ability to cut off your work. It's not like that in trial mode. So just know there's always the exception. I mean, your weekends, your nights, your dreams, okay? You're going to dream your closing argument. You live your trials. And when you lose, you learn way more than when you win. So just remember, I told you that when you lose, because you will. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking and it's the best way to learn. And it's also, you give your full self to that. But the day to day, you can cut off. Like you need to have other life pursuits. And that's when, I, you know, prior to children and, you know, my whole life, <laughs> I actually had like social life, did volunteerism, all of that. So, I think it's really good to have other pursuits. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, guys, last call. Anybody, one more, one more question. We've been richly fed tonight. It's really purposeful work. You know, you get to represent the, the people who are deeply in need and they deeply look to you for help. And it's not money, it's freedom. I mean, come on. Like, you, and sometimes life. You know, so just know what your paycheck might not ever fulfill you. The purpose of this profession and the ability to to really use your intellectualism and your, you know, your caring to help people in deep need. It's a calling and it's so rewarding. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah, I'm glad I'm sorry for you guys. Contact me anytime. Okay. Well, and like I said, I'll distribute those, uh, the, the slide deck and, you know, any, if you want to send me that form that you were reading off of, we'll make sure that it gets to everybody as well. So everybody let's give uh, Mrs. Rylander a big zoom round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Thanks so much for joining us for this special bonus episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Links to the resources Mrs. Rylander referred to uh, will be available in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for joining us, and we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.